I'll be reading Mark 1, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This morning, I would like for you to use your power of imagination and imagine that you're a Jew living in a small Palestinian village in AD 30. Stay with me now. You've been put in a time machine. You have been drawn away from February 2019, and now you're sitting in Palestine in the year AD 30. In that village, there sits a synagogue where ever since your childhood, your elders have sat you at their knee and have told you stories about their heritage and their faith, the patriotic history of your great nation. The storyteller spoke of the good old days when Israel had soared to her peak, to her zenith. She was the greatest, the richest, the finest, the biggest, in fact, the chosen nation of God. God had given her wealth and power and those great leaders that you long for today, men like Saul and Solomon. And then there's David, especially David, the warrior king, whom the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. But the storyteller then has to sadly proceed and tell you the sad story of Israel's fall, of her demise. A thousand years from A.D. 30, looking backwards, she began to lose her great unity. As a Jew, you suffered, as the elders told, about the split into two kingdoms. You weep at hearing how the Assyrians erased the northern kingdom from the face of the earth. It grieves you to hear of the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom. And you began to wonder why. After all, we were the best, we were the strongest, we were God's chosen nation. How could God allow this to happen to us? As your heritage unfolded, you began to see a painful pattern emerge. Israel was passed from one conqueror to another. The good old days began to fade in your mind as you were told how that your people were passed from Babylonia then to Persia, and then from Persia to Greece, and then from Greece to Syria. And you feel the pain, and you share the grief of the generations, and you see old men cry, and you see other men began to shake with rage, with with great anger, and, and there's plenty of frustration to go around, as well as shame. All that and worse. They then described how large numbers of your people were actually sold into slavery. You felt their anguish as they told how that the temple was plundered. And then December the 15th, 168 B.C. is a hole torn in the heart of all of Israel because it was on that day that the heathen god Zeus was placed on the altar of the temple meant to be a sacrament to the one God of the universe. If you can imagine, ten days later, a pig was sacrificed there. And it tore a hole in your heart as well. But hope began to flicker, if only for a moment. As the elders began to speak of the Maccabean victories, they speak about the admiration of the Jewish families who fought back trying to regain the good old days and restore Israel to what it had once been, God's chosen nation. But today's reality is Rome. Can Rome be overthrown? That's the question that is uppermost in the minds of every Jewish believer in A.D. 30. And and you still have hope. Some have given up. But you still remember the promise that one day a great leader will return. The old men said he will regain what has been lost. He will unify the nation. He will crush all the enemies of Israel. Will this great leader, will he be another Moses? Will it be Elijah coming back or 
What about Jeremiah? That was what the early disciples wanted to know. Or, or does it really matter at all? Because what counts most is the kingdom. The kingdom must be restored. But in order for the kingdom to be restored, we must, we must have the Messiah. And you find that many share your faith and your hope, and they too have remembered those promises that were spoken by the patriarchs back in those Old Testament days. Many are willing to actually go and fight. The expectations are so strong that many of, have, that many of those messiahs or supposed messiahs have already come, claiming to be the messiah. And all of them promised a military answer to the centuries of repression, and all of them stirred the political hopes of the people, and all of them said in one way or the other, what you need most to do with your life is to follow me. And, and many Jews listened, and some of them followed them, and many died. And now here it is, A.D. 30, and another man appears in the nearby wilderness. He's powerful. He's courageous. He's not afraid to confront that powerful King Herod. He has the audacity to call the powerful king an adulterer, and he's John the Baptist. And then we, he goes to prison eventually for his courageous and bold words. Is John our leader? The people wanted to know. Is he the Messiah? They wonder. And, but John himself says, no, there's one coming after me. And he spends most of his sermon time, when he comes out of the wilderness to talk to the people, he spends most of his sermon time pointing the people to, and I'm quoting John now, one who is more powerful than I, whose shoe straps I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's Mark 1, verse 7. At this point, a man, a man named Jesus steps into the picture and everything changes. You see in Jesus a man who embodies authority and control. In fact, the scriptural record says over and over again he spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. All the scribes could do was reflect their own learning. They could tell you what the scriptures said, but Jesus came and said, I want to tell you the message straight from God. You see awesome power. You see wisdom in this man. But, but you have to wonder what does it all mean? What do you, this, this first century Jew, conclude about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And why has he come? Seem to be the two questions of paramount interest. With a background and the heart and the hopes of the first century Palestine, consider, if you will, the very first time that Jesus appeared on the scene and began to talk to people and say to them, follow me. If you'll turn your Bible back to Mark chapter 1, Nicholas read verse 17 a moment ago, but I want to read some, some more passages that give us a fuller picture of what it meant for Jesus to walk along the seashore or through the cities and to say to people at random, it seemed, follow me. Starting with verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, watch this carefully now. He said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately 
He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now, when we read that passage, the first inclination is to say, here's some men who have some impulse control problems. This Messiah comes along, this Jesus comes along, and says, follow me. They don't even bother to put in a notice. They quit their jobs, they drop their nets, and they began to immediately follow Jesus. So the question I want us to ask for just a brief time this morning is what does all of that mean? And how does it relate to us today, 2,000 years later? What did Jesus mean when he said to those men, I want you to follow me? Now, would we assume that when his first disciples heard him say, follow me, that their automatic reaction was to think, well, that means that this is the Son of God. That means we're going to eventually write the Bible. And we're going to teach people how to love their enemies. And we're going to establish the church. No, We have absolutely no reason to think that we can take our 21st century perception and put this into a first century encounter. But there is every reason to think that a first century Jew would see Jesus as their long-awaited political Messiah. Emphasis on political. The political longing had existed so for, for so very long. And so when Jesus said, follow me, then Simon and Andrew and James and John, the text says dropped their nets and followed, but not altogether for the right reasons. I think anyone who has looked closely at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and especially this book of Mark, would have to agree that they were not initially following Jesus for pretty much any of the right reasons. Their political motives were ambitious, they were self-serving, and yet, watch this carefully, Jesus still allowed them to follow him. I think that's absolutely astounding. He didn't say, now your motivation must be absolutely pure. Your understanding must be entirely accurate. You must know exactly who I am and what I've come to do before I will ever allow you to follow me. No, he simply said, follow me. And he allowed them to follow him for the wrong reasons because he knew that the correction in their thinking was going to take some time. When you think about it, the Lord's patience with these men was absolutely impressive. Even after he died, when you get to the very last chapter of Mark, one of the last verses in this book talks about Jesus looking at those men because they think that the, res- or the crucifixion has represented the end of the story. And so the gospel message has come to an abrupt end. All hope is lost. And he upbraided them, Mark says, because of their lack of belief. These men just don't get it. They don't understand. But again, Jesus is is patient with them. And he's helping to eventually and incrementally correct their vision as they walk with them. Because after all, they did have enough faith in this Jesus when he said, follow me, that they were willing to do that. He entered a world that was going in the wrong direction. And Jesus' main mission clearly was to turn the whole human race around. And how did he do it? Well, answer is patiently. One person at a time. And that's why Jesus, I think, chose to concentrate his efforts first on these 12 disciples. If Jesus had wanted to infuse these disciples, think about this for a minute. If he had wanted to infuse those disciples miraculously with instant understanding, he could have zapped them with that understanding. He could have done that. If he had wanted them to have instant maturity and instant commitment, he could have done that. In fact, he could do that still today if that's how he chose to make disciples. He could do that with millions and billions of people. He could have changed everyone's mind instantly. 
But he could have done so, and I know you're ahead of me, you're already thinking about that. He would have done so only by violating their free will and their freedom of choice. And Jesus wanted their freedom to choose. He wanted their decision. And so what he said was simply, follow me. And you know what? Even though 2,000 years has elapsed, that's pretty much what he's still doing today. All your questions have not yet been answered. Your faith is not yet mature. But still, Jesus says, the Christian life, discipleship, following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ is a lifelong construction project. So I want you to follow me and we'll take the rest from there. Jesus took people just as they were, politically charged, nationalistically motivated, but still willing to follow him. And the meaning of following Jesus was gradually, and I mean gradually, unfolded to those people. He didn't tell them all at once. The Bible says that over and over again. He told them in as much depth and as, in as, as much detail as they could accept at the moment. I know that because Mark tells me so. Mark chapter 4, verse 33, if you want to flip over a few verses, a few chapters, Jesus spoke the word to him. The text says that he actually used parables in most of his communication with his disciples so that they would at least to some degree get the application of what he was trying to say. But then it goes on to say, as much as they could understand. Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Isn't that what he's still doing in 2019? He did that because he knew that they couldn't grasp it all. They weren't going to be able to swallow it and digest it in one sitting. And so he hoped that they would have ears to hear. That's what he called them in chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 23, knowing that the vast majority of people who heard the call of Jesus to come and follow me would not, would not listen. And so he chose 12 men, hoping that they would finally give him their free will and cooperation and loyalty. And about, by allowing this personal freedom to choose, he also allowed struggle. And he's still doing that today as well. First, the 12 struggle with him. He was not, and I want you to catch a quick glimpse of this before we're through this morning. He was not what they expected him to be. Were they longing for and looking for the Messiah? Certainly. They'd read the three. 130 plus Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, just like any good Jew had done. But when Jesus came, he still wasn't what they were expecting. For example, if you look over in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, one day Jesus calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. The twelve watched him bring it to a sudden halt, and his doing that, if you remember the text, scared them. The Bible didn't say that they were impressed or that they had reaffirmed in their hearts, this really must be the Son of God because nobody else could do that. No, the Bible says they were scared. And, and his abilities and his power were much larger than the political pigeonhole to which they had assigned him. Their exact words were, who is this? That's just another way of saying he is not who we thought he was. And when Jesus announced for the very first time that he was going to have to die, you may remember that Peter also struggled. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Peter especially, the Bible says, singles him out and says he struggled with the idea that Jesus was going to die. Well, no wonder. 
because of the political framework in which he had placed this Jesus and Jesus' kingdom, he was thinking he can't be even close to through being through with his mission. How can he die? And so he fought it and he rebuked Jesus as if to say, you're not going to die, Jesus, because that's not the way this works. And the 12 didn't understand. And the Bible specifically says in Mark 9, verse 32, that they were afraid to ask. You ever been in a situation where you thought, I've got lots of questions, but if I ask any of them, I'm going to sound stupid. And that's pretty much where the disciples were. They were afraid to ask Jesus because of the fact that they were lacking in insight. They did not understand. They thought Jesus came as in the wrong framework. He was the wrong man at the wrong time with the wrong message. And, and they'd been with him a long time, but they still did not understand. They struggled with what he said. And not only that, but with what he had come to do. But at the t- same time, let's give eagle weight. He also struggled with them. I want to mark, walk through the book of Mark very, very quickly. This will just take about 30 seconds. Let me share some verses with you to indicate how Jesus struggled with them also. Mark chapter 4, verse 13. Here's where he asked them one among many times. Don't you understand? Chapter 4, verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Chapter 7, verse 18. Are you dull? Don't you see? And then chapter 8, 17. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember chapter 8 in verse 18? And then finally in chapter 8, verse 21, he asked that question one more time. Do you still not understand? I hope from now on when you read the book of Mark, you will appreciate of all the sterling qualities of our Lord, his patience has to stand out. And not just his patience with those early disciples, but his patience with us. From this message, follow me, come, I think, four important lessons describing what it means for us to follow Jesus today. I want to touch briefly on each of those four, and then we're through. Lesson number one. Now, again, appreciate the fact that this is not a history lesson. My intent this morning in working up this lesson was not for us to come back and look at Jesus' relationship to his early disciples and say, boy, they just didn't get it, did they? Much like we can go and look at the Old Testament and see the fickle Israelites and go, boy, those people were sure uh, unstable in their relationship to the Lord. They served him one day. The next day they were serving false gods. They, they just didn't get it either. When the Lord looks at us today, and there are times when he has to say in his assessment of our spiritual standing, maybe they don't get it either. Lesson number one then is Jesus was saying to them and to us, follow me. Instead of someone else. Because you see in the time of those early disciples. In AD 30 thereabouts. There were lots of alternatives as to who they could follow in their spiritual allegiance. The alternatives for the twelve are not really all that different from our own. Politics and power and wealth and success and pleasure. These alternatives are competing for our allegiance today. Just as it was in the first century. All of those things still say to us follow me. And people around the world and people right here in Montgomery, Alabama are still following those things, trying to find meaning, purpose, and happiness and fulfillment, just like people did 2,000 years ago. And so we have to ask ourselves as, as people who have already purported to say, I am committed to following Jesus as faithfully as I can, 
That means that we have to ask ourselves some very heart-penetrating questions. We have to ask ourselves questions like, is your business more important than your faith? Is your recreation more important than your worship? Are your possessions more important than your soul? You see, those are questions that we have to ask ourselves on a daily basis to make sure that when we said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you, that we were serious about that commitment. Just as those of us who are married stood one time before a justice of the peace or a preacher and said, I'm committing my my life to this man or to this woman for the rest of my days, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, and so on. We make a similar vow when we become disciples. And when Jesus says to us, follow me, and we say, I'm going to drop everything just as they did and follow Jesus, were we serious about that? These questions, I think, are very much relevant for us today. And yet they were composed. They, were, they find their genesis all the way back in the first century. Those were questions those men had to ask themselves as well. And just as they did, Jesus asks us today to follow him instead of something or someone else. Don't miss that. And he told his disciple, and he reminds us, that a choice simply must be made. Does this sound familiar? No man can serve two masters. Matthew 6, verse 24. The second lesson I want us to appreciate that Jesus was teaching them and us is to follow me from where you are. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people about potential discipleship. What's on the line is their soul's eternal salvation. And they're thinking about the demands of the gospel, what Jesus and and living for him would require. They're counting the cost as sincerely and deeply as is humanly possible. But they think, here's where I've got to be in order before I can ever begin to follow Jesus. If I just knew more, if I were a more moral individual, if I had my act together a little bit better, then maybe I just might be kingdom material. And Jesus says, if that's your thinking, you've got it all wrong. I want you to follow me from where you are right now at this moment in your life. Those early followers did not come to Jesus as, as a blank slate as, or as perfect, perfect people. They came with all kinds of problems and flaws. And you can read about that when you read the Synoptic Gospel message. But Jesus And please take this home with you. Jesus took them just as they were. And he began to change them at the very point where he had found them. To be sure, they were stubborn and selfish, but he stayed with them and he worked with them. And that's how Jesus relates to us when we're stubborn and when we fail. He doesn't ask us to wait until we have all of our lives put together and when we've got all of our spiritual ducks in a row before we follow him. He asks us to follow him from where we are Right now, just as I am, without one plea. Lesson number three, Jesus wants us to follow him all the way to his destination. You see, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a hundred-meter dash. This is a marathon run. Because much later in the story, in the gospel story, that is, things are going to become very tense. These men are going to begin to question, should I have actually followed him when he gave me that invitation? And many began to leave Jesus after discovering that he would not accept a political kingship. They wanted to make him a king. Remember that incident? And Jesus refused to allow that. Well, that wasn't what they thought. That wasn't the reaction that they were expecting or that they were longing for. And so they began to, they began to leave him. 
And then over in John chapter 6, you find some very penetrating observations. Jesus asked his original followers, one version of of chapter 6, verse 67, reads like this. You don't want to leave also, do you? The King James Version actually says, will you also go away? Because verse 66 has just said that many of the disciples began to forsake him and to leave him. They're beginning to understand at least some of the costs of discipleship, and some are not willing to pay it. And so their answer was in verse 68, to their credit, to whom shall we go? What alternatives are there? What option is there? If I say, no, Jesus, I will not follow you, what direction will my life take? Where will I end up? Because when Jesus says to us today in 2019, I want you to follow me, he wants us to follow him all the way to his destination. He doesn't want us to be a Christian for six weeks or six months or even for 60 years. He wants us to be a child of God, living faithfully to him and committed to his cause for the rest of our natural lives. And he's saying, in essence, if you're not willing to do that, then you're not kingdom material. But the question they asked in the first century was, to whom shall we go? Because you are the one who has the words of eternal life. And I think that point is immensely powerful. If we stay with Jesus long enough, it will become clear to us that we have absolutely no other alternative. All other promises are hollow and they lead nowhere. People are still taking those routes, no doubt. But when you say no to Jesus, you have sealed your eternal fate. Now, Jesus did describe another way. And he told his disciples, when he was still telling men and women, I want you to follow me. I want you to become a disciple of mine, and I want that disciple. If you accept discipleship, that means that eventually you're not only going to learn from, but you're going to become like the master, the one that you are following. But he told them, there is another way. But I have to tell you, he said, this is Matthew seven thirteen. It is wide, and it leads to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. And yet when we examine that alternative, we decide today, and correctly so, that we do not have to go that way. That is not the path. That is not the road. That is not the fork in the road that God wants us to accept, to choose. We can stay with him and we can follow him all the way to his destination. And in in case you misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm talking about all the way to heaven. That's where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He wants us to follow him so that someday we can be reunited with him in that eternal city of gold. Lesson number four and finally, follow me in my mission. Did the disciples understand that when Jesus said, follow me, he was saying, I want you to then be involved in my work. I want you to share in my mission. I want you to reflect the same degree of passion that I have in my desire to seek and save that which was lost? And the answer to that, I think, has to be no. They did not fully understand that. We can only guess what the 12 thought of Jesus' original call, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 17, that Nicholas read a moment ago. And that, that's a passage, folks, that is so familiar to us, we immediately go, of course I know what that means. But did those early disciples, when Jesus walked along that shoreline and said to those fishermen, follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men, do you think that they really had an inkling of what that meant? Fishers of men. 
That doesn't even make any sense. He certainly knew they didn't understand what he meant by it at the time. But if they would just, if they would just stay with him, that they would later look back on these early words with a clearer understanding. Oh, now I see. Because in Mark 16, when you get to the last chapter of this wonderful gospel account, Mark then says that Jesus said to his disciples just before he left to go back to heaven, here's what I want you to do. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. And so it is with us today. Our initial efforts at ministry may be awkward and simplistic. And there are times when we have to admit that our approach may be rigid and legalistic. And we may be more interested in offering a propositional sort of argument to people. Here is why doctrinally you need to accept these things. And all of that is important. The doctrine about Jesus and and the doctrine that he wants us to accept is immensely important. But we must never forget in our own relationship to the Lord and in our trying to convince other people to follow Jesus that what we're talking about is a person. And when we talk about Jesus coming back, as we discussed a few weeks ago, we're talking about looking for a person, not just an event. We're looking for King Jesus to come back and to bring his kingdom with him back to heaven. And the longer we follow him and the more we'll go about his ministry as he did with patience and with service and loving mankind. And every time we see someone out here on Atlanta Highway, and every time we see someone in a store here in Montgomery, Alabama, we don't just see black and white. We don't just see man and woman. What we see are eternal souls that will live on somewhere in eternity. And we'll have what Paul called in the book of Ephesians, enlightened eyes. And we'll begin to look at things and see people in a different way. They're not just irritants. They're not just nuisances. These are people who have souls as valuable as yours and mine. And Jesus died and spilled his blood, shed his blood for them as much as he did for us. And as much as it means for us to gather here in this building on a Sunday morning and to gather around this table and to be reminded of that immensely powerful sacrifice We have missed the point if we do not accept the mission of Jesus when we say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. So when Mark closes the story with that final command, go and preach the gospel to every creature, we we must put that within the framework of Jesus' own ministry. The Great Commission is not just some kind of generic motivational formula. Instead, it is the final statement of a story that gives it all meaning and purpose. And many are the ways to engage in a religious mission. But Jesus asked him, asked all of us to follow him and him alone in his mission. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The question of the hour is, are you willing to follow Jesus? If so, won't you come while we stand and while we sing? Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus.